All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we've got another Advent sermon for you, helping you get ready for Christmas. Because here at the podcast, we try to help you navigate faith in the modern world, which means we want you not just to celebrate the holiday season or or Christmas, but we want you to be a Christian who celebrates Advent. Whether you call it that or not, we want you to be a part of something bigger than just buying presents and just being stressed out. We want you to celebrate the good news of who Jesus is. But um, before we get to that, there have been a lot of uh, you've reached out after the Deconstruction Podcast, and I feel like we've touched on a subject matter that is pressing for many of us on the show. And so I appreciate uh, just the uh, the honor it is to get to serve as uh, a resource, and I like thing more than a resource, but a friend, um, even if it's just a uh, virtual friendship from a distance, but I, I appreciate the honor that it is for me. And so I want to follow up on a few of uh, uh, the comments, specifically the idea about uh, practices to help during deconstruction. Now, if you didn't listen to the podcast, the idea of deconstruction, at least as I'm describing it, is this process in which you um, you inherit, you grow up with some version of faith, and at some point you realize that, like this this just isn't working, and something has to happen. In the same way that you know the church was around for 1,500 years, and then there is a protest by the Protestants like Martin Luther and John Calvin and what we call the Reformers and that they reformed the church and they protested against what the church was and some of its abuses. And so if you're a Protestant, if you're an evangelical, if you're, you know, what most I think of my listeners are, we come from a segment in the Christian tradition that has in our name a reference to our own deconstruction. We protested against some of the abuses in church. And uh, so that happens for for many of us in our own personal journey. And, uh, you know, I've heard from many of you in the ways that, you know, different things have caused that. You know, for some of us, it's it's trauma. Uh, for some of us, it is uh, like just our own personal, uh, like, growth as we try to intellectually comprehend things um, for others in life just hands you you know uh you know a, a rough set of cards and the hand that you're dealt is painful and it causes you to rethink and reimagine how life is supposed to work and so however and whatever caused you to go into this process and what you're reimagining and you're in some ways protesting against this like the shell of christianity that you grew up with what we don't want you to do is to lose christ the shell comes and, and goes like there are shells and there, there are structures that, that get built around it, but that doesn't mean the essence of it ever changes. And so during this deconstruction process, one of the things that I think is most important is to hold on to practices that sustain your faith, because there is a need to differentiate and dare I say bifurcate between the shell and the actual substance of it. And I think the, the way to do that is you got to have practices and uh, if, if you've listened to the podcast for any amount of time, you've heard me say that over and over again, because I think ultimately practices are, are what sustain us. And uh, so some of you have asked, like, what, what are like specific practices? And one of the things I would want to say up front is every person is going to have their own experience with the practices. But for the most part, they're just a handful of practices that we all do. And so your experience with them will be different from my experience with them. When I talk about scripture, like my my day to day life is probably different from you. I, I I was thinking about this on the way into work. Got into work. I'm going to spend the next couple hours 
um, studying a text in Second uh, Corinthians, and then I'm going to break for lunch, and then come back after lunch, and I'm going to spend a couple more hours on a different text. And so I'll probably spend four hours today, maybe more, maybe more, studying scripture, pondering how to preach two different texts, and then tomorrow I'm going to do the same thing with my um, go over my Christmas Eve sermon, and then in the afternoon I'm going to focus on a text from the Sermon on the Mount. And so over the next two days, I, hopefully I get to spend upwards of you know six to eight hours studying scripture, which I assume most of us do not have just the physical capacity to do that because of the structure of our life. And so what works for me is going to be different for you. And I I think anytime you get this like one size fits all piece of advice, it probably doesn't fit anyone, right? Like if it's supposedly one, like one size fits all for everyone, it's usually just the size of the person who's talking about it. It doesn't fit everyone. So everyone's going to have some unique experience with this. But what I would say is there are some basic foundational things, Uh, Let me make a metaphor or comparison to the fitness world. There's a uh, group of uh, people that I follow online, and uh, there's kind of this resounding message that I've heard where you have some people on Instagram who call themselves fitness experts, and their expertise comes from their ability to kind of like make up new exercises and make it look new and novel and fancy. But maybe they're less than helpful, and the fitness level that they actually have was derived not from doing these, like, you know, brand new, cutting edge, never seen before fitness techniques as much as they're come from doing the basic building blocks, but yet doing the, like, the new, the novel, the unseen before makes them notorious, gives them attention, gives them a crowd, but that's not actually what helps them or actually anyone. And so there's just like, if you want to be a person who like gets into fitness, like there's some basic things that you're going to have to do. You're going to have to push some stuff. You're going to have to pull some stuff. You're going to have to lift some things up. You're going to have to do some squats. Like all this stuff is just basic building blocks for fitness. And they, they can look different. They change over time the way maybe exactly they are like in your life. Like, so to be very specific and to lean into my meathead ways, for my birthday, um, for maybe 10 years, maybe more than that, every day on my birthday, I would do bench press. I would do my one rep max, and then I would do my, um, like what they do at the NFL Combine. It's the uh, most reps at uh, a certain weight. And so every year I would do it one rep max, and then how many reps I could do at uh, 225 every year. And then about uh, 35 or so, like right around when I moved down to Austin, like I just stopped doing that because I realized like that bench press is probably not the best thing to do for my shoulders long-term, probably not the ideal movement. And so I still do like pressing stuff, but I don't do that in itself. What I'm trying to say is like, it's still the basic building blocks that I do, but it looks a little bit different. And so when it comes to your spiritual practices that you need, there are some basic building blocks. What are you bringing in? What are you putting out? And what are you surrounded by? And so for some of you, maybe your faith was, you know, a traditional quiet time. That's what you used to do and it worked great for you. So you would read, you know, three chapters every day. On the weekends, you'd read five chapters and that would help you read through the Bible every year. And then all of a sudden like that, like that doesn't work for you in the same way that it used to. I mean, that's a great practice. If you've never done that, I would encourage you spend a year, three chapters every day during the week, five chapters on the weekend, and that's going to get you through the Bible in one year. Basic calendar, it it should work, whatever. It's a great idea. 
But for some of you, like that's what you grew up with. But now all of a sudden the Bible is more complex to you in the way that you understand it. It feels different to you. And what I'd recommend is maybe it looks different for you now, like what your intake from scripture is. And maybe it looks more like there's an ancient practice called Lectio Divina where you just take like a verse or two and you meditate on it. And what I encourage you, it's like still the same basic movement of intake from scripture, but the way you experience it is going to be different. And when I say outtake, I mean, you have to be serving, right? Like, so you're bringing stuff in, but you also got to be helping someone else. A lot of people miss that component to spiritual health, where we think it's just about like what I'm consuming. But in the same way, like your personal fitness, like you have to consume good calories, right? Like you have to have protein, you have to have fat, you have to have good basic nutrients that are coming in, but you have to burn it as well. And I would argue like for our faith, you can't just focus on consuming things. Well, I just listened to this podcast. I'm listening to this sermon. I read this book. Like that's extremely helpful, but it has to be in conjunction with you serving with something else serving somewhere else for someone else like that that has to be a basic building block that you have to be doing something for the sake of others because otherwise it's just about what you're building up for yourself and ultimately as first corinthians would tell us like knowledge puffs up but love builds up and i think as important as like thinking and processing and and meditating on scripture and like those sort of intellectual like efforts are like there has to be some form of outtake in what you're giving to someone else and then the last part like you have to be surrounded by someone else uh, that is going the same trajectory as you and you know for some it's like you know bible class that's perfect for me that's that's what i want to do and you know it's at your church and it works great for you wonderful um, but for others, like what you need at a certain specific point in your life is going to be different from that. Like that's not what what you need. But ultimately, you the people you surround yourself with in the present dictate where you're going to end up in the future. And so you have to surround yourself with people who are going the same trajectory as you. And what that looks like, I mean, that's going to be different for each and every person. But you have to maintain, like I think these these are kind of like three foundational pillars. It's intake, it's outtake, and around you. Like what's who's around you, what are you giving out, and what are you consuming? All those things have to be um, like, like a, a core part of your life. And if you want to get through deconstruction without losing like the essence and the heart of what your faith is, I think you got to hold on to those. Uh, otherwise, like I, I think just, there's just a lot of, um, there's a lot of evidence out there. Like if, if you don't like that's, that's probably not going to be, um, a good outcome for you. Um, uh, yeah, if you want more about this, like I, I, I kind of wrote a, a book that's, you know, functionally like me going through my own personal deconstruction process, my first book out over good. And, um, like that's a, basically a shameless plug right there. But honestly, like it's, it's my long form answer to this question of like, how do you withstand deconstruction how do you go through deconstruction and come on the other side with with the faith and so like now um you know i'm extremely grateful for what that process was for me but i i use past tense because it's not where i am right now and most of all maybe what i encourage you um to see is that there are people who've gone through this before you like this isn't new for christianity there have been plenty of people i'm one of them that have had their own deconstruction process where they had faith man this just isn't working for me anymore and there's something that's just off and as much as i want to go back to what where i was and to go back and do the things i used to do they just don't they it's just not working the way it used to and that doesn't mean there's not a way to find faith there's not that it doesn't mean that there isn't a way for you to be connected to Jesus. Like there's still a way to do that. It's just going to be different. 
And there have been plenty of people before you that are this great cloud of witnesses who are saying, hey, just keep going. You can do this. You're not alone. You, you aren't the first person to experience this. Your experience is unique to you. It is definitely um, not someone else's experience. But what we would say is that you are part of like this big cloud that have experienced something like this before. And what I would tell you is that God can get you through this. God got me through this and I think God will get you through this as well. So um, that was a rant on deconstruction. And uh, now I'm gonna transition. We're getting into a little Advent sermon. So without further ado, here is my guest for today, which is my own self talking more. So, all right, enjoy. Oh yeah, one thing I forgot to say. Uh, in the sermon, I reference a fire alarm going off because literally um, a fire alarm got pulled at the beginning of service. And so, uh, you know, that was something. So we had to like all evacuate the building and, um, you know, it was a false alarm. Uh, it might've been a kid who, you know, got his sweatshirt caught on it. Um, so that's the story I've been told. That sounds believable to me. But, uh, anyway, I reference a, a fire alarm being pulled and that is the context. So, uh, there's, there's real life. That's what, uh, church is like. Fire alarms get pulled, but, uh, the show must go on. Here we go. Uh, we are in that season leading up until Christmas, a season known as Advent. And during this season, there, there are themes that the church for a long time has brought up. Themes like hope and peace and love and joy. And in this series, we're talking about Christmas signs, not we're talking about just church marquees, but the way that the signs of what we see in the story of Christmas give us a picture of the way things are going. Because as much as we're anticipating December 25th to celebrate, the season is really more about preparing our hearts to look forward to when God comes again in the person of Jesus down to earth. Uh, So this morning, we're going to start by reading Luke chapter 2. And so if you're physically able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields. Keeping watch over their flock by night, then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So if we can jump to, back to verse 11, 
Uh, We see the angel say this about the child that is to be born. To you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. In, In Christian belief, there's three main descriptors of Jesus. And they're all said right here in Luke chapter two. Savior, Messiah, Lord. And this word Lord has special connotations. The intimate and personal name of God that's given in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, when those Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, this is the word that was used to describe God's most holy and personal name. And so the angel says that there is a baby that's born to you who is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And the angel tells the shepherds, this is going to be a sign for you. Now, part of what that sign is, is telling you which baby it is that they're looking for. When they get to the town, there there are other babies around, and so part of it is just really practical. This, This is the one you're looking for. But I think more than just a practical description of what baby they are to be looking for, That sign describes who this baby will become. It's a sign of what the Savior, the Messiah, and the Lord is like. It's a picture of who he is. Because where and how he was born is a sign. And where and how he was born was in a poor peasant Palestinian's place. Was anything fancy? Was anything special? It was a small area so small that you would have animals and humans crowded together. The place where he was placed was this food trough, a manger probably on the other side of the room, maybe right on the wall. And this is a sign to you. Now, I assume most of us have never been into a poor Palestinian's home and seen something like that. But we have seen something like that. These places are all around us. I was born in Philadelphia. When I was in middle school, my family moved to rural Southeast Ohio. And when I say rural Southeast Ohio, I really mean rural. It was so rural that the road that I lived on didn't even have a name. It was just uh, this unpaved road that our mailing address was literally Rural Route 407. And I never knew the actual name of the street that I lived on because we gave directions in rural southeast Ohio by just saying, you know, when you see the red barn, turn left there. Like, that's how we gave directions. And so I lived out kind of in the woods, which meant people kind of lived however they wanted out in the woods in rural southeast Ohio. So our neighbors had a couple hundred acres. They had cows. It was beautiful. But a few miles down the road on the same bus stop that, or the bus route that I rode every day was a little encampment. And it was um, a handful of mobile homes that were kind of parked around this property. There were a bunch of vehicles that weren't running and that were just parked there. It wasn't uncommon to see trash just left in the front yard day in and day out. It wasn't uncommon to see a little baby walking around in just a diaper without shoes on, and maybe that looked like it hadn't been cleaned very recently. And I'd like to think that I never called that place what everyone else in the bus stop called it, but I was a kid and I'm not sure. But the place that they called that area was Goonville. 
And I'm embarrassed that I didn't say anything about the name that everyone probably called that place. But as like picturesque and hallmarky as we make the nativity scene out to be, it was probably less like that and more like that little trailer encampment a couple miles down the road from where I used to live. If Jesus would have been born in Philadelphia where I was born, it would have been in the area we probably call the projects. If Jesus would have been born in Brazil, it would be in an area that's called a favela, a slum. And the angel says, this is a sign for you. For what the Savior, for what the Messiah, what the Lord is going to be like. If you want to know what royalty is going to look like, the sign for you is right where Jesus is born. Because it's a different type of royalty, a different kind of Lord and Messiah and Savior that we all thought we were getting. It looks different. What we have is the King of Kings who's willing to stoop down really low. And every time we see that, it seems like the fabric of human history doesn't know what to do when you see royalty stooping low. That's not the way human history goes, right? When we see these signs, it, it, it kind of takes us back a little bit. Uh, let me show you a picture of a person some of you might recognize. Uh, that gentleman right there is King Hussein of Jordan. Jordan is a country in the Middle East that neighbors up to the nation state of Israel. He served as King of Jordan from August 11th, 1952 until his death from cancer in 1999 when he was 63 years old. A quick bit of math tells you something that's peculiar. If he was 63 when he died and he started serving as a king in 1952, it's a peculiar story, and it's, it is. He became king of Jordan when he was just 17 years old after his beloved grandfather was murdered right in front of him. He sees his grandfather murdered. He becomes king at the age of 17 and if you, you calculate all that and imagine how the story goes for King Hussein, it's not at all what it actually becomes. In the Arab world, one of the great unaccepted behaviors is meeting with your enemies. But in the year 1963, the King of Jordan, King Hussein, started meeting with Israelis. And if you know anything about the geopolitical climate of the Middle East... The nation state of Israel has a great deal of tension with the entire Arab world, including Jordan. And so he starts meeting with Israelis in 1963 in secret. He does it all the way into the year 1994 when the peace treaty between Israel and Jordan is signed. And just a few years before he died from cancer, there was a bombing by a terrorist killing some Israelis. And so the king of Jordan, King Hussein, made a trip to the homes of these families that were mourning the loss of their loved one. And the story kind of captured many people's attention because what you had was a king who shows up and just sat with them. And sat and was present with people who, like he, were feeling the grief from someone they loved being murdered. He didn't offer how he's going to fix it or money to, to, to undo the pain. He just sat there with them in their pain. And the story of a royalty, a king from another nation stooping down to be with 
what until recently was their enemy was so unexpected. Because that's not what royalty does. The Episcopalian priest Fleming Rutledge says this about royalty stooping. She says, if it is true that there is unique power in the combination of royalty and stooping, then there has never been anything comparable to the errand of the Son of God. In Jesus Christ, we see the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be clutched at, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. It's Philippians 2, 6 and 7. If, if you want to see what a, a king looks like who stoops down, we, we see bits and pieces, maybe occasionally, but we see it in the person of Jesus. And all that started in the beginning, the, the place where Jesus was born was a sign to what kind of one he would be. He was a Lord who even though the Jewish people would turn their face because God was too majestic for them to see, this is a Lord who would stoop down and be born in a peasant's home. He was a savior who even though he sat on the king's chair with all the nations around him, he would simply be one who would sit in the food trough. Even though he was the hope of the world, he would be confused as simply a peasant. And this was a sign all the way from the beginning of the kind of king that Jesus would be. And so it's no surprise later in his life, Jesus would say these words from John 15. Jesus said these words. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I, did not, I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that the father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commandments so that you may love one another." Jesus says, there's no greater love than to lay your life down. And we always saw that's where it was headed. Because in the beginning, that was the sign of the kind of king that Jesus would be. That doesn't make sense because that's different from the way we do life. Like we naturally just take care of ourselves. We, we lift ourselves up. My, my first job out of school had uh, Lindsay and I move to Florida. We lived on the Gulf Coast in Florida. And I brought a buddy of mine out to preach at our church who um, lived in Oklahoma at the time. He was mid-30s, brought his wife and his kids. He was um, uh, excited to come to the beach. And so one day we went out to, um, in Panama City where where we lived, there was the bay and then there was a canal that was dug uh, years before that would open up commerce for the area so that you could take the bay and it would connect to the Gulf of Mexico. And so it was called the pass, and so it was really deep in the middle where boats could go. And so you had a lot of uh, commerce that would happen right there, but also it opened up for a lot of um, wildlife to pass through. So it was really neat. You'd see dolphins all the time, and occasionally you would see a manta ray. Now, if you've never seen a manta ray, this is what a manta ray looks like, right? So they kind of look like stingrays, but they're not stingrays. They're, they're very gentle. They're very friendly to be around. They're great to see. Now, I'm out with my friend Wade his wife and his two young sons. Now, let me tell you something about Wade. Wade, in his early 30s, was a big CrossFit guy, 
right? You know the number one way to tell if someone does CrossFit is they tell you. The first rule of CrossFit, they tell everyone that they do CrossFit. And so Wade is out there, CrossFit guy, he's got his wife and his two young sons, and we're in the past, and all of a sudden this big school of manta rays come by. And he just sprints out of the water. Now, I always knew he was a follower of Jesus, but I did not realize he too could walk on water. But he did. Like, he's pushing his kids out of the way. His wife's in his wake. And he, like, basically, like, jumps into the boat. And leaves his family back. Pulls himself up. And I, I asked him afterwards, once his wife started talking to him again, two months later. I said, Wade, what happened, man? And he goes, I, I don't know what came over me. I just had... To get out of there. I don't know what happened. I just had to pull myself up. That's how we do things. Luke begins chapter 2, verse 1, with identifying the time and the place where Jesus was born. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus. This is Caesar Augustus. He was the most powerful person in the world, and he didn't get there by accident. He fought and clawed and pulled himself all the way to the top. He did it in word and in deed. Now, his adopted father was a guy named Julius Caesar, who's known for his orange drink and the fact that he was the most powerful person in the world of his time. Now, in 42 BC, after he'd already died, Caesar Augustus named his adopted father divine. They deified him so that Caesar Augustus could call himself son of the divine. Like, as a father of daughters, like, I always call my little girl princesses, which is a nice thing to say to them, but you know what it means about me? Like, it means I'm a king, right? Like, it's a a baller move right there. Caesar Augustus canonizes his father as a god so he could say he is the son of the divine. His name... Caesar Augustus was not his actual name. His actual name is Octavian. That's the name he was born with. But he gave himself the name Augustus, which means exalted, venerable. He's lifting himself up. That's the way we do things. When you go to a restaurant, you naturally think not about anyone around you, but you getting the right table, the right service, the right food at the right time. When we vote, we vote about our interests and what we want and what's good for us. When it comes to social media, we put the best picture of ourselves on, right? Not anyone else. We post the comments that make us look good. We naturally are pulling ourselves up. There was an English priest named Edwin Hoskins who said, the incarnation is a dagger thrust into the weft of human history. Weft is like the, the fabric. He says the incarnation is like a dagger that's thrust in the middle of the fabric of human history because it is so different. And from the very beginning, this was a sign that the way of Jesus would call people to a new way of living where the best thing you could do is to give your life up for someone else. In a world in which everyone's pulling themselves up, the incarnation says, no, let's pour ourselves." Out. And it has changed human history ever since then. Where those who heard Jesus' command to love one another, and love is no greater than when you lay your life down, is seen. And things are changed because people follow the sign of the incarnation. Let me tell you about one of those people. 
This gentleman right here is a guy named Rick Rescorlia. Not a great picture, obviously, but uh, Rick was born in the year 1939 in Cornwall, England, which is not to be confused with our beloved Phil Ware's Cornbread English. Not the same thing at all for you longtime Westover people. But he was born in 1939 in Cornwall, England. He served in the British Army, but also in the United States Army. Uh, he served in Vietnam. And then in the year 1985, he moved to New York City to become the head of security for Morgan Stanley. Uh, Morgan Stanley, the financial firm that was located on floors 44 through 74 of the South Building of the World Trade Center. On those floors, there were roughly 2,700 employees for Morgan Stanley. He got there in 1985 and 1993, there was uh, a bombing, which further instilled a sense of concern for him. And so one of the things that he was adamant about doing was doing a, um, an emergency exit twice a year, like a fire alarm drill. And unlike you all, <laughs> many of the people who worked on Wall Street for Morgan Stanley complained about having to do this fire drill twice a year. You could hear the jokes that they would make on the way out. Again, you guys are way better people than them. There was the callback. I told you I was prepared. Always. Thank you. On September 11th, he was in the South Tower when the first plane hit the North Tower at 8.48 a.m. The New York Port Authority told Rick to keep everyone in the building so as not to create a panic. The Port Authority was making the best decision they had at the time with the information in front of them, told Rick, keep your people in the building, and Rick yelled back, I'm getting my people <clears throat> the <clears throat> out. And so they started to leave from floor 74 to 44 all the way out the building. And as they were going down the stairwell, he, he was singing songs to lighten the mood. A few minutes later at 9.03 a.m., when the second plane hit the South Tower, most of the people had started to make their way out, and he was on the 10th floor. And the last report of Rick is that he was turning around to go back up to make sure everyone got out of the South Tower. Uh, there's some reports that he made it all the way up to the 72nd floor. In that time, he was able to get his wife on the phone. And it's reported that he told his wife the following words in that phone call. If anything happens to me, I want you to know that you have made my life. Do not cry. I have to evacuate my people now. Because of Rick, some 2,694 Morgan Stanley employees safely made it out of the South Tower. He and only five others perished on September 11th because he laid his life down for his people, for my people. Uh, the memorial plaque in Cornwall, England, for him has his name and has five words from Scripture engraved on Those five words are, 
There is, there is no greater love. There is no greater love. A subtle reference to the text from John 15, there is no greater love than for someone to lay their life down for their friends. And the incarnation is this dagger that pulls the fabric of human history apart and says there is another way. For those who see the way of Jesus and follow it, who empty themselves for their friends. And this is a sign of the way of Jesus. There is a um, beautiful piece in Cloisters in New York. It's um, the, called the Marode Altar Piece. Uh, let me take a look at it right here. You have this uh, three-piece paneling. On the left, you have people praying. On the right, you have Joseph and his carpentry tools. And in the middle, you have the angel speaking with Mary, saying the words, do not be afraid. In this moment, the, the unknown artist depicts Mary becoming pregnant in this moment. And uh, if we can actually zoom in right here on that, let's put it on the big screen so you can all see it. What the artist has done has depicted baby Jesus coming to the womb of Mary already holding a cross. Because from the very beginning, this was a sign, the way of Jesus, where there is no greater love than someone who lays their life down for their friends. And Jesus said, this isn't just a sign for you to look at. This isn't just a neat story for you to remember. But I command you to live this out. I command you to live this out. And I assume most of us in here are never going to be a a king of any country. And so it's not going to be looking like us meeting with our enemies in private. I pray to God that none of us experience what Rick experienced on 9-11 as a security director in the World Trade Center. But each of us have small and minute ways that we can lay our life down for others. Where we can serve those who are supposed to be serving us. Where we can be kind to those who are not being kind to us. And that's not easy to do. We don't always do this. On Monday, I went into my gym. And I get there Monday. And one of my, my good friends... He sees me, and he's, he's a waiter at a restaurant in town, at Serrano's up by, on Lake Line. And he goes, Luke, on Sunday, some church people came in, and they were actually nice. <laughs> I, I was a waiter 20 years ago when I was in college. And even back then, most of us in the restaurant business knew that Sunday afternoon is not the ideal time to work at a restaurant. Because the reputation of church people isn't isn't always good, don't always treat waiters well. And so my friend is so excited because last Sunday at Serrano, some church people came in and they were considerate. And they asked my buddy, hey, whenever you're, you're ready, when you get a chance, can you bring us this? Or, hey, if you don't mind, we're, we're ready to go, can you get the check for us? It's kind of sad that that's not normal. But what if instead of going somewhere and expecting someone to serve us, we see ourselves as people who lay our life down and serve others. 
By the way, if you're going to go eat lunch up north, would someone go to Serrano's today? I've got the Discover Westover lunch, and so I'm going to be here, but could someone go there and be nice to a buddy of mine? He's a Latino guy with a sleeve of tattoos, okay? Please, seriously, do this. But what if it looks like being kind to someone who's not being kind to you? As Jesus said, everyone is nice to those who are nice to them, but what if you could be the kind of people who even love your enemies, who, who pray for them, pray for the people who are wrong to you? In doing so, you take the sign of Christmas and you change the way human history goes, where we lay our life down for someone else. Now, let me just say this, though. To give this love away, you've got to start by receiving it. And I know not everyone has received this love. And so for some of you, it's just like a, an unopened box, like an unopened present. When I was a kid, my, my parents would put our presents underneath the tree. They'd be all wrapped, and they would leave them out underneath the tree for sometimes weeks. As we got older, they stopped doing that because they stopped trusting us. But they would just sit there and we'd look at him like, I wonder what's in there. And some of us, we we see the love of Jesus, the love of God is revealed to us in the person of Jesus, and we just look at it. But unless you open the present and receive it yourself, you're never going to experience it. So if you're here this morning, if you've never received this love, I'd encourage you to open the present and receive it yourself. If you don't know what that looks like, after we receive communion, I'll, I'll actually be back there. If you want to talk and pray with someone, there's plenty of people who love to do that with you. I'll be back there. If you want to talk to me, I'll be right there. But you've got to receive it. But don't be confused. The story of Christmas isn't just about remembering what happened. It's about anticipating what one day will happen again. The God who appeared to us in love in the person of Jesus in a poor peasant's place in Palestine we'll return again. And one day we'll make everything right. And all the heartbreak and the sadness that's around us, the confusion and the grief and the pain that we carry, we believe that love will make that right too. Amen? One of the ways that we receive this love is in communion. So in a minute, I'm going to ask the people who are going to serve at the tables to make their way there. And so we've got two options for how to receive communion this morning. Uh, for some of us, the best way to do that is to open the prepackaged communion that you received on the way in. Stay at your seat and you can do that. Uh, if you feel comfortable and you want to, we're also going to have servers at tables around the room. And you can go to there and, and someone will hand you the cup, which is going to have bread in it. And they'll say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And they're going to hand you another cup that has the juice in it. And they'll say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And however we receive this, it reminds us of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, but also it anticipates one day when the love of God sets all things right, we will have this heavenly feast together as we receive love. So let's pray. God, I thank you for the love that you have revealed to us in the person of Jesus. that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And while we chose our way and ourself 
and our will, in the love of Jesus, you have overcome all sin and death and given us a new way. You've given us hope. And I pray for those in this room who may have never received your love. I pray that you would open them up to receive the good that you have for them and the love that can wipe away all wrong and set everything right. And God, now I pray as we receive the body that was broken and the blood that was shed, that in this bread and in this cup, we would see how you meet us there and you continue to lay your life down for us. We pray this in the name of the resurrection.